Hey, welcome to Proofing and Lies. This is a social science podcast about current events and delicious recipes. I'm Elle Rochford, a PhD candidate in sociology at Purdue University. I'm Andrew Shriver. I'm a public defender in Northeast Ohio. Each episode, we'll sift through the flour and the facts, bringing you tasty recipes and interesting topics. We're talking about the Balkans and a bread called povetitsa. Uh, for more on that, Andrew, help. Um, so povetitsa is like a, a dessert bread, basically. Um, you serve it at holidays a lot. My grandmother used to make it. Her, you know, her family and a lot of her neighbors, because she grew up, or my mom grew up in a very Slavic neighborhood of, of Cleveland. They all made it for holidays. You know, they made it after church sometimes. Um, and it's just a night, it's like a walnut and chocolate filling in this bread. If you look it up, you can kind of see it's got, you know, it's got a bunch of swirls of the filling through it. I mean, it's really good. You serve it, you know, with coffee or with like a little bit of jam maybe or something like that. It's, you know, very tasty. Yeah. So I'm really excited to to make this bread because I've only ever seen it and it's beautiful. So when you cut inside, there are different, different kind of swirl patterns throughout the bread. Um, so you make it like a long coil and then you wrap up the coil into a loaf. So you should get lots of little swirls throughout. So not like cinnamon raisin bread where you have like that single spiral. Mm-hmm. You'll have lots of little like bread and filling ratio. Yeah, and it's a, if you make it right, it, it's nice because it kind of break like the little swirls kind of you can break them off as you eat the bread if that makes sense. You know, they kind of come okay. apart on their own. And it's really good because you can like dunk it in the coffee. And it's, yeah. it's delicious. Yeah, um, I'm excited. Yeah, yeah. So we have our dough is is rising now. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of a a wet dough so mm-hmm. far. It's like smooth and stretchy. Because it was what it's eggs, milk sugar, yeast. Yeah. So I, th- I think that would be an enriched dough. I think enriched dough is when you have like eggs and butter and milk. That sounds right to me. But yeah, we'll let you know how it turns out. Um, it's uh, If you've seen the Great British Bake Off, they do an episode with, with <laughs> Povetitz on it. And it is a little bit harder to bake. You, you bake it for way longer than you would think because um, it's a very wet, very you know nutty filling kind of yeah, so, so it's easy to leave the middle raw. So because the Balkans is kind of a complex topic, and because this bread is is a complex bread, we're going to break this into two parts. So part one, we're going to talk about making the bread, and part two, we're going to talk about how it turned out. Um, but we're also going to talk about the Balkans, uh, which is something I don't know very much about. So Andrew's going to be explaining it to me and explaining it to you. So it, it is. So my family's, uh, as I said, sort of is from there ancestrally. Um, although, you know, I was born in the U.S., my grandmother was born in the U.S. even, so it's, it's been a while. But it's always interested me. It's always been a, a sort of unique area of the world um, with a lot of interesting history. And I think it's a place that one of the places in Europe that Americans know the, the least about. Speaking of it being a unique area of the world, um, obviously, I understand the geography and which <laughs> countries are a part of this area. But maybe for our listeners, could you could you list the countries that are a part of the Balkans? Yeah, so um, it's it's Southeast Europe. It's across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. So we're talking about Slovenia, Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia, Montenegro, Kosovo, Albania, Greece, and Macedonia, or North Macedonia now, uh, formerly the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, formerly Macedonia. But uh, those, it's most of the region used to be Yugoslavia uh, for most of the Cold War. 
uh, until the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 90s. The thing that Americans likely will remember about the region is that during the Clinton administration, um, NATO led a first a bombing campaign and then like an on-the-ground intervention to stop the, the genocide in Kosovo that the, the Milosevic regime in Serbia was, was attempting to undertake. And that's sort of the last time that America has really had to give it crap um, <laughs> about that region. There have been, you know, fits and spurts since then, um, since the end of the Milosevic regime, uh, the American government's been involved in the the courts in The Hague, the the, um, the war crimes tribunals for the former Yugoslavia, which have have been and, and sort of are still ongoing. Just about I think two months ago, the president of Kosovo was indicted for war crimes. So the fallout from that from the '90s is still very much going on over there. Okay, and so part of the reason we're talking about this now is they they recently had some elections. In some of these nations, right? Yes. Croatia had elections this year. Serbia had elections this year. Macedonia and Montenegro very recently had elections. And Bosnia is set to have municipal elections this November. And like the local elections in Bosnia are more important than they are in other countries because of how weird the Bosnian government is. What does that mean? So... The Dayton Peace Accords from, I forget what year, 99-ish, ended the wars in the former Yugoslavia. And part of what they did was to guarantee the independence of the constituent entities that were Yugoslavia. So Montenegro, Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Macedonia. And to create uh, you know new governments for some of these, especially Bosnia, which was one of the most highly contested regions. Um, that's where the, the genocide primarily took place. That's where the, the massacre at Srebrenica occurred. And Bosnia is unique because it is the inner it is it is probably the intersection of the three major ethnic and religious groups in the Balkans. So the, the three main, I guess, competitors, for lack of a better word, are, are the Croats, who are largely uh, Catholic, the Serbs, who are largely Orthodox, and, and Bosniaks, who are largely Muslim. Um, and a lot of Bosniaks have their ancestry in the Ottoman Empire's colonization of the region, stretching back from the 1300s until World War One. And there's a lot of long-term bad blood between those three ethnic groups, um, the Croats and, and Serbs, having had issues since the Great Schism a thousand years ago, and the, the Bosniaks having issues with the two uh, predominantly Christian groups since the, the time of the Ottoman invasions and thereafter. And there's a lot of, uh, in a similar way to how Northern Ireland um, traces a lot of Protestant an ancestry to British colonization, a lot of Bosniaks trace Muslim ancestry to Ottoman colonization of, of that region. So because these three groups are present in, in large and almost equal numbers within Bosnia and Herzegovina, the governmental system's insane. Okay. Is that the, that's the technical legal term for it? Yeah. So there are, each ethnic group has an allotment of power constitutionally in the, in the Bosnian government, right? So like, for instance, the presidency of Bosnia is actually three people. There's a Croat representative, there's a Serb representative, and there's a Bosnia. Okay. And the, those three people together form the presidency of Bosnia and Herzegovina. How does that work? Poorly. Especially because uh, the, the Serb entity within Bosnia 
is actually itself an autonomous region similar to I like a Kurdistan and Iraq, or I'm trying to think of another good example, but perhaps like a Puerto Rico here, or, or like Wales and Scotland in the UK okay. is actually probably one that people are more familiar with. Um, so like, like Scotland in the UK, it has its own parliament, it has its own leadership, it, it governs a little strip of, of Bosnia on its own, and its president is the constituent president of Bosnia. So the president, it's called Republika Srpska, meaning the Serb Republic. And the head of Republika Srpska is a gentleman named Dodik, who is also the Serb part of the three-part presidency. And he would like Republika Srpska to break off from Bosnia. Okay. Yes. In a similar fashion, uh, the, the Croat part of the presidency, the Croat member of the presidency, is also a, a sort of far-right Croat nationalist who supports the Serb, well, to, to a greater or lesser degree, supports the independence of Republika Srpska, which is all very bad and threatening now because it's just a renewal of the same sort of ethno-nationalist ambitions that started the, the Yugoslav wars in the first place. Yeah, I was going to say this, this sounds like something I had read about in, in history. Yeah, so the um, there's a lot going on there, and one of the one of the things, one of the major challenges for the region is that a large amount of Serbs believe that Serbia was un- and Milosevic were unfairly blamed for the breakup of Yugoslavia and the attendant genocides. You know, people will say that there were war crimes going the other way too, which is true. Um, and a lot of those people have been have been and, and continue to be prosecuted. But but people generally say in, in that the wars were the the, <laughs> the secession of the constituent countries was illegal. That there were war crimes being committed against Serbs, and that the Serbian government took the actions it did to pr- protect its people in the constituent republic. This is bullshit, and it's genocide of denial, and it's apologism for. Um, for what ultimately was a, a fascist nationalism. Um, can you can you just um, maybe back up and give us a, a timeline of, of that first conflict? Yeah, so that, that first conflict was something like six different ones. But essentially, um, the uh, Yugoslavia had been run for pretty much entire its entire existence by Joseph Tito, who was a former socialist partisan who had resisted the Nazis. He uh, was... I believe he was a Croat who was capable through force of will and and by you know doing a lot of hard and soft diplomacy was able to keep the constituent republics together in a very effective, honestly, way. Um, but there was nobody like him, um, and certainly not his replacement, who were by comparison, you know, you've heard the story right before uh, in a thousand different countries. The big, important, strong man who held the country together by force of will was followed up by a bunch of people who did not have the same abilities. Charisma? Yeah. 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 And nature abhors a vacuum, and Slobodan Milosevic um, realized that there are more Serbs here than anybody else, which is true. And so by appealing explicitly to Serb nationalist and and, um, ethno-nationalist rhetoric, found himself the head of the Serbian Socialist Party and and therefore shortly thereafter uh, president of, of Yugoslavia. But and what's the what time period is this? This is late 80s, early 90s. Okay. Um, Milosevic's rise to power scared the shit out of everyone else for good reason. 
Uh, I mean, he was adopted. I mean, Tito, for all of his faults, explicitly discouraged this sort of ethnic, these sort of ethnic ambitions, this, this sort of rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Milosevic was very explicitly tying himself to Serbian folk heroes of the 1300s, explicitly invoking their the, the Serb struggle against the invading Ottoman Empire in a way that again cast the Bosniaks as invaders and bad guys. I mean, and, and still to this day, you'll see fascists. Uh, is, you know, Serb fascists will refer to to Bosniaks as Turks, which is and a, these are people who've been living there for hundreds of oh, years. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, at this point, literally centuries. Yes, I mean this. One of the things to understand about my people is that the most important Serbian holiday uh, celebrates the Battle of Kosovo, which we lost. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, uh, I think, I want to say it was 1380. Yeah, it was 1389 because Milosevic family famously gives the 500th anniversary speech. In 1989, or 600th anniversary speech. I can do that. But it celebrates the uh, the fall of an independent Serbia and the the colonization of the region by the Ottoman Empire. And the reason it's celebrated is that Serbians view it as them sacrificing themselves to save the rest of Christian Europe. Hmm. There's a lot to unpack that yeah. I don't have time for. Sure. Um, but that's that is that's how a lot of, of a lot of my ancestors and a lot of my relatives see themselves as, you know, the the fall guy that protected through through our sacrifice, Western Christianity was protected. You know, the, which to some degree is true, you know, the the intensity of Serbian resistance bought time for the Western powers to rally and organize and eventually halt the Ottoman expanse at the Battle of Vienna. It's a whole thing. But, you know, they still cling to this, whatever, 600 plus years later. Um, and, and it's playing to these these images, these nationalistic images that allows Milosevic to take power. And there is certainly, you know, some evidence that, I mean, I don't, very few people start with the idea that they are going to commit a genocide. But first, Slo- Slovenia b- votes to break away in, I think, 1991, and Croatia follows shortly thereafter, and then it's and then it's over, right? Bosnia and Macedonia leave, and what remains of Yugoslavia is is fighting wars to try and you know they declare all of these secessions illegal, and they're fighting wars pretty much for the course of the 1990s. To try in vain to keep to keep the constituent republics in Yugoslavia, and again, I mean, a lot of it starts out with the idea that we are we are protecting the Serb minorities in these countries because all of them do have some portion of, of ethnic Serbs, and it's it goes bad. I mean, and it turns into you know government sponsored private militias. You know, the Scorpions are probably the most infamous. I think that was Ratko Mladic's group who is uh, serving a life sentence at The Hague. This, this, so the siege of Sarajevo, uh, the Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, was besieged by, by Serb forces for, I, I believe, 40-plus years. It was the longest siege in Europe uh, in the 20th century. It was longer than the siege of Leningrad. And at Srebrenica, I, I believe it's almost 8,000, uh, mostly women and children, were murdered at a UN refugee camp by Serb paramilitary forces. And all of this eventually, although in typical American fashion, sort of way too late, leads to the NATO involvement in 98-99, because at that point it looks like Milosevic is going to march into Kosovo, which used to be the heart of Serbia, um, the heart of Orthodox Christian Serbia, 
But since the Ottoman conquest 600 years back, most citizens of Kosovo are, are Muslim, um, and a lot of them are ethnic Albanians. And it looks as though the what remains of the Yugoslav army is going to march on Kosovo and start murdering people again, which leads to uh, the NATO involvement, leads to Bill Clinton sending troops, eventually leading to the Dayton Accords, the end of the war, and eventually Milosevic being deposed in 2002. I guess I didn't fully appreciate how recent this all was. Oh, yeah, we were. I mean, I, I forget it took so long for Milosevic to be overthrown because he again he was only he was only arrested and, and turned over in 2002 um, and some of the some of the Serb military leaders were not turned over until much much later I'm trying to decide I need a year real quick uh, yeah probably the the biggest and worst one Radovan Karadzic was which I, I always butcher his name so apologies but he was um he was only arrested in 2008 because, and he lived on a Serbian army base for like three years. Wow. He was only ultimately arrested because the EU made his arrest a condition for Serbia to even be considered for membership in the EU. Well, that's a good condition. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and that's the thing is um, Milosevic was overthrown and the wars ended, but a lot of these people didn't go away, right? A lot of, of Milosevic's lieutenants remain in power in Serbia for years afterwards. I mean, and still uh, Alexander Vucic, the current president of Serbia, was originally a member of the Serbian Radical Party, which was farther right and like far more nationalist than Milosevic. Um, and he ended up taking a position in Milosevic's government where he was responsible for press censorship and is now the president of Serbia. Good. So there's nothing good going on, <laughs> frankly. Um, there's very little positive to, to say about the region. I mean, because unfortunately, the thing is a lot of a lot of, of liberals and leftists just died in the like we're, were just killed in the 90s on like all sides. And so, you know, in response, I mean, the, the Bosnian, the Bosnian government or the Bosniak representatives in the Bosnian government are, are almost all hardliners themselves for sort of understandable reasons, I suppose. But I mean, it's still a very conservative, very nationalist government. You know, Croatia is increasingly run by, you know, right-wing ethno-nationalists. Serbia has long, has pretty much always been, you know, even since Milosevic was deposed, run by hardliners. Um, And so the current state of things is something of just an angry armed standoff over there. Good. Seems... Seems good. Mm-hmm. Well, so then what What do the elections look like? So um, to call what happened in Serbia an election is a stretch because there really aren't political parties there anymore. I mean, your choices there, such as they are, are between Vucic, who's very hard right, and then actual literal Nazis. I see. You know, a similar thing is going on in Croatia. I mean, a lot of the, the social democratic to socialist parties there have been destroyed. I mean, in Serbia, a lot of it was because, you know, the socialist party post Milosevic has sort of a bad rap for the obvious reasons, but even the social, you know, more, more center left social Democrats over there have been wiped out. You know, Bosnia is, is sort of a similar story. I mean, that the effect of the Dayton Accord government is 
that you've sorted everyone on ethnic lines and everyone who enters into politics has to pick an ethnicity and cannot pick more than one. So you can't be, you know, even if, even if you are, you can't be, for instance, Serb and Albanian, right, or, or, or Serb or Croat. You have to pick an ethnicity under which you are running for election. So the, the party system is an ethnic system or there are parties and ethnicities? There are parties within the ethnic groups, but there are very few cross-ethnic parties because you're, the politicians have to run at first as Serb and second as whatever party they're running. Okay. Um, and so, unfortunately, the side effect of that is that people who um, would be more open to cross-ethnic collaboration and cross-ethnic movement building don't have a home in the electoral politics of Bosnia because you can't, because the you have to sort by ethnic lines first. But I have to imagine there have been challenges to that. I mean, are there any kind of inter-ethnic marriages and families there are i mean there are people who um end up losing like getting kicked out of politics for lack of a better word because of it. i mean because the thing is you 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 self-sort so hard that you know we are a serb party and if you are col- a collaborationist with bosniaks or, or, or with croats where you're you don't have a home in the serb party anymore okay um and and the ethnic sorting leads the dominant parties to all be incre- incredibly nationalist and incredibly right wing, or you know, incredibly ethno nationalist, incredibly right wing. Uh, and there are minor parties within each of the three ethnic groups that that are advocates for um, you know cross cross ethnic collaboration or, or whatever you want to call it, but they're they're minor parties. You know, the the large major ones are all right wing. Uh, at best center-right and all cripplingly nationalist. Yeah, and and for our listeners who are probably more familiar with American politics, kind of the the global right-wing is different than what we would talk about as right-wing in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're certainly talking more, again, like ethnic nationalism than like lower taxes. Right. Because everybody still kind of agrees on like the basic welfare state model. Uh, they just don't want Muslims to have it is, is like what's going on over there. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the like conservative government of Croatia still runs like a welfare state with universal health care. They just have closed the border to immigrate or, you know, to refugees from Syria and, you know, are quietly supporting the breakup of Bosnia. Gotcha. Yeah, it's a mess. And the problem is there's no way to change the Dayton Accords government because the international community still has a, there still is a high representative for Bosnia, uh, who at this point is an Austrian gentleman. What is that? Uh, so the Dayton Accords installed okay. the, the position of high representative, which is basically, I mean, it is a colonialist, it's a viceroy, essentially. I mean, there is a, a guy that the EU sends who has his office has veto power over the bosnian government and can remove bosnian ministers and officials even at the local level that doesn't seem like something that is still happening in 2020 right it's uh insane it's a bizarre way to govern so but so you cannot change the governmental system there because the international community wouldn't allow it. It would be a breach of the Dayton Accords to try to modify the Dayton Accord government. And any politician you tried could be re- and would be presumably removed from 
office. That's wild. Yes. Um, and so as a consequence of that, there's a town called Manjar that has, is a city of about 200,000 people that has not had municipal elections in 12 years because, again, the, the tripartite government setup just allowed for the creation of an unbreakable stalemate in how the municipal elections were going to be run and who and, and how the, the municipal government was going to be allocated. So the same people have been in charge of the city since 2008. They just haven't had another election and they haven't had a city council since 2010. So this year that, that town is going to be holding elections for the first time. Wow. In over a decade. Yeah, in, in over a decade. There are people who are 30 years old. This will be their first election that they vote. And this is, this is considered a, a democracy, like yes. a, a democratic yeah. country, even though it's got a viceroy and all this... Yeah, well, so it's it's the the municipal level elections, like I said, become much more important because there's generally nothing but paralysis on the national level. So a lot of the times, you know, your local elections are the only ones that are going to actually mean anything as far as changes in your life or policies that will affect you. Um, and in case you're wondering how like foreign policy works with with three different presidential entities, I. Uh, Again, it doesn't. It really just doesn't. Uh, there is very little like official foreign policy of Bosnia. Largely, what has gotten done is in like fits and starts. Uh, Bosnia recognizes the independence of Kosovo, but that was basically at gunpoint um, and over the objections of the Serb mem- members of the government. Well, and that's contested other places too, right? So there are still yes. countries that don't recognize Kosovo. Yes. So the the usual bad actor suspects, I mean, you know, Russia and China don't and have never recognized the independence of Kosovo, largely at Serbia's behest. Russia, a little bit more because they actually care about Serbia. China, mostly because it makes America mad that they don't recognize Kosovo. And it it has consistently caused problems for the EU. Because one of the preconditions for Serbia ever getting admitted to the EU is, is a full and unequivocal recognition of Kosovo and a normalization of diplomatic relations, which is not coming soon. Because, I mean, Serbia still views itself as the major power in the region, um, which is probably true. I mean, it's the largest, or at least was until recently, the largest economy. I think Croatia might have, have beaten it out for that. Um, but it's certainly the strongest military. And a lot of people, if you ever hear anyone talking about a greater Serbia, they are bad people and you should run away from them. Because that is the project of, of Vucic and a lot of Serb politicians. Is So if Republic of Serbs guy ever did break off of Bosnia, the first thing that would it, it would do is formally rejoin Serbia. There is now a government in Montenegro, which recently uh, itself had elections. That is a hardline Serb nationalist party that perhaps seeks to rejoin Montenegro with Serbia. And the goal is to isolate and essentially destroy Kosovo until it is retaken. I mean, that's the the ultimate goal is a, reun- a reunification of all of the areas that Serbia believes belong to the greater Serbia. Doesn't sound positive. It, that sounds ominous. It's it's bad. I mean, I would go so far as to say it, it is bad. Yeah. When it's interesting, because like that, that kind of rhetoric sounds like something out of the 19 teens. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it very much is. 
And I guess, I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is, you know, a lot of these relationships are within the Balkans, but like how, how do these countries interact with the, the other Europeans that are bordering them? That is, that is a good question. So Slovenia pretty much like got out of this unscathed more than anybody. They, they border Italy, they're right to the east of Italy, like they're an Alpine country. They are a Slavic country, but they are the closest to Western Europe. They are majority, almost entirely Slovene, like they're their own ethnicity with their own shit going on. They're pretty fine. Um, none, of the, like, none of this stuff is happening to them. Um, they are, I believe, fully integrated into the EU um, and NATO. They have their own soccer team now. They're doing great. That sounds good. Yeah, uh, everything's just kind of going fine for them. Croatia has had a similarly successful run of things. Uh, They quickly integrated into the EU. Uh, They had a run where they're they're, uh, they they had a run where where Andrei Plenković, who's their prime minister, who just won re-election, his party won um, like two-thirds of the seats in parliament, like absolute landslide, has been running a, what a lot of observers really love, you know, center-right technocratic banker's government, basically. You know, there's still a welfare state, but major concessions to businesses for trade, did everything that the EU asked off the bat, they've been at peace with their neighbors, um, and everything's sort of been chill there. Uh, you know, fastest growing economy in Europe um, at one point until recently, part because part of what's happened too, as in America, is the coronavirus has brought out the weirdest and worst actors on the right, especially. So Plankovich, uh, when his party won re-election, had a party with some um, far right politicians in Croatia. Uh, people who who'd sort of publicly identify with the Ustase, which was the Croatian Nazi uh, arm, um, and more, I guess, more relevant or, or at least more sort of stunningly, um, they had a big, huge, you know, several hundred person party without masks in a room with like a brass band and stuff. And this was a guy who like the rest of the European community had treated as like you know, an Anglo Merkel style, like very common sense, boring, you know, Christian Democrat center right person. And so then there is this this kind of sudden turn. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, what's in his heart or whatever, how sudden it, it is um, throughout the Balkans, you know, suspicion. I, I mean, it's one of those things like suspicion of the West is still strong everywhere suspicion of American intentions is, is always, you know, is, is always sort of strong and suspicion of, of the EU's leaders sort of everywhere. And so it's hard to say, uh, largely because Plankovich didn't answer any questions about it, you know, to what extent this, this was an actual lurch towards a, a farther right agenda or, or cooperation with further right people, or the extent this was just a middle finger to, you know, the EU for the sake of talking points, there's the potential that, you know, Plankovich was acting very calm and moderate and nice to get what he wanted. And now that he has it and has, you know, soundly won re-election and, and his party has essentially a veto-proof majority in their government for the next at least four years, that now is the time for him to just tell everybody to, and he's, you know, this is the sign that he's going to do what he wants and become 
another semi-autocrat, as is getting kind of common down there. Because they all, you know, the other actor, it's not a Balkan country. It is perhaps a Slavic country, depending on how you figure that. But Hungary is on the border with Serbia and with Croatia. And Viktor Orban has been an unapologetic authoritarian for most of the last decade. And, uh, you know, and the Polish government in in the area has has become increasingly right-wing and authoritarian. Um, And Croatia now has has closed their borders, as I said, to refugees from Syria. And so the crisis in Bosnia is, is deepening because Bosnia, being a majority Muslim country, is one of the few that will openly allow these majority Muslim refugees through. But a lot of them just get stuck there Uh, because the surrounding countries have all closed their borders. And now Bosnia is dealing with a a significant refugee crisis because it's not a state with a whole lot of money and it's not a very historically stable nation dealing with a massive influx of hundreds of thousands of of refugees. When I imagine between ongoing conflicts and and climate refugees, we're only going to see those numbers increasing. It will not get better. And there's a lot of, I mean, Greece, which neighbors... Pretty much all these guys to the south has either officially or unofficially quietly started disposing of refugees that end up there. It's unsure. I mean, that's it's one of those things. It is unclear who exactly was the actor here, but someone basically shoved a ship of, of about 200 Syrian refugees just back out into the Aegean for them all to die. And it's not uncommon for the Greek government to just let people sit on the beaches and not, you know, to, to keep people trapped on the beaches and essentially starve to death or whatever happens, happens to them, uh, or to just hustle them over the border to Bosnia and, and make it somebody else's problem. Um, some combination of all three of those is going to be very much the future. So that's grim. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and, that, and it exacerbates the religious and ethnic tensions because as Kosovo and Bosnia uh, and, and Albania are seen as increasingly Muslim and therefore increasingly othered countries. I think peace becomes increasingly less likely. Yeah, uh, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, it, this is not a visual medium, but my face was. Uh, um, the one, uh, the one, yeah, the the one other than Slovenia, who I, I by I think is just doing well. I haven't really checked in on them, but you know, I, I, they seem like everything's going fine there. <laughs> but. Uh, Macedonia is actually doing very well. Which is now northern Macedonia? It's now northern Macedonia. Can you tell me what what that's yeah. about? Yeah, give me... Um, <laughs> we'll cut this in post. Get it in post! I just, need a ti- I just need a timeline. So, yeah, so Macedonia, it's a little... It's almost a little circle-shaped country. It, it borders Greece and it borders Bulgaria and it borders Albania. And then... It gained its independence in the Balkan Wars. It was one of the not invaded by the Yugoslav government. Um, <laughs> they were kind of basically just like, except in very small part, um, they, they, Milosevic basically was like, we've got other problems you guys are through. Is there another one? They, they largely are not involved in that the three-way ethnic struggle. Um, right? They kind of are doing their own thing. I won't go into the ethnic group that comprises the majority of Macedonia because that's a Greek and Macedonian problem. The Greeks will tell you they're Greeks. The Macedonians may disagree. It's a thing. But it, go- it literally goes back to Alexander the Great, who was the king of Macedon, which was in Greece, maybe. Okay. The Greeks, have- the Greeks think that Macedonia is stealing their, their name. Basically. So this 
So like an ancient copyright dispute. Yeah, well, because there was no such entity, right? There was no independent Macedonia until the interwar period and then only briefly. You know, it was subsumed by the kingdom of Yugoslavia, which at one point was the kingdom of the kingdom of Croats, Serbs, and Slovenes, which just rolls right off the top. But nobody really, it wasn't an independent entity. Nobody really gave a crap until after World War II. But most of that was subsumed by the fact that it was part of Yugoslavia. So again, you know, everything was kind of kind of cool until it broke away in the early 90s. Um, and then the world's longest and dumbest naming dispute began in, like, in, in earnest. Because originally, I want to make sure I got my, my timeline right, but originally it was, it was uh, after independence, it was just called Macedonia. And they took the what's called the Virginia Sun, which is, um, it's this like the very pointy okay. star image. It's yeah. on their flag. It was the image that Alexander the Great used as his standard. And the Greeks accused Macedonia of stealing that heritage, of stealing Alexander the Great, who is like the big Greek guy that everybody knows. Okay. Um, I mean, it's more complicated than that. It goes into... I was going to say John Stamos. Right. But, um... So there have been... There's a guy named Matthew Nimitz who was appointed by, I think, Carter originally to um, talk uh, about the other weird Greek territorial issue, which is Cyprus, which was a big deal in the 70s and 80s. Okay. Um, whether uh, Cyprus was going to be Turkish or Greek or independent, there was a lot going on. But Bill Clinton in uh, 94 nominated him, and he has worked ever since uh, to the Committee on the Name of Macedonia. So the last time the Browns were four and one. Yes. <laughs> yes. The last time the Browns were four and one, Matthew Nimitz was appointed by President Clinton to try and resolve the issue of the name of Macedonia. Incredible. And they did successfully restore normal diplomatic relations between Macedonia and Greece on the condition that until a more formal name was achieved, Macedonia would go by F-Y-R-O-M, the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia. One more time? The former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia, F-Y-R-O-M. Byram. Yes, was the official name of, of that country. Um, no notes, I love it, Byram. Yeah. And in, in 2018, the Prime Minister of Greece and the Prime Minister of Macedonia agreed on the name the Republic of North Macedonia. Because the other thing was, in, in a similar fashion to Serbia, a condition of Macedonia's membership into the EU was figuring this shit out. Got it. So there was a referendum uh, in Macedonia. Voters overwhelmingly affirmed the agreement uh, and thus accepted membership into the EU and NATO. And on March 27, two, uh, 2020, North Macedonia was uh, officially entered into NATO and the European Union. I think that's a good um, a pin to drop, and we can we can pick up next time. Mm. Uh, so right now, our, our dough is rising. We're about to roll it out, make yes. the filling, and bake. Uh, we'll come back and tell you how it turns out, and we'll, we'll dive deeper into some of these very intricate <laughs> 
things that I yeah. absolutely knew about before he just now explained them to me. I, I definitely knew the timelines and the geography of this region. For sure, I, I did know all of this beforehand, yeah. uh, but we will come back with another episode where I will have a thousand questions about all of this. Yes, um, I'm going to take a, a second before we go, um, and I will, I'm sure do it when we, when we come back next time. But I want to uh, plug a, a podcast called Sarajevo Calling. Uh, it's by Alexander Brezar and uh, Jasmine uh, Mijanovic, um, who are both Bosniaks living in the United States. Uh, they were they were both, I believe, born in Bosnia and, and left during the wars. Uh, but they do a very good job uh, following news there, like current news there, and making it uh, what's the word? Ex- Accessible. Yes, thank you. Accessible to an American or yeah. Western European audience. What's What's the name of that again? Uh, Sarajevo Calling. I Not think. that I need to listen to it, but I, <laughs> I will be subscribing. You can find them on Twitter. They're they're both a little bit more more centrist uh, than my general take, but they do a very good job of, of explaining what you know what's going on there. So great. Well, and as always, you can find us on Instagram at Proofing and Lies. And on Twitter at Proofing L, that's Proofing capital L. Uh, And we also are streaming on Spotify, which you probably know if you're listening to this now. Thanks for listening and tune back in for part two.